Lord, that we would go out and proclaim your word as we are taught in these chapters. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, I sound so loud. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not too loud. Sometimes I can get boisterous. Okay. Ladies, if you turn on the news, open a newspaper, look on social media, what are we consistently seeing? Inflation, war, evil in our schools, corruption in the government, and so on. Have you found yourself asking the question, why does God allow evil to prevail over good continually? Or why do righteous continue to be persecuted and the unrighteous prosper? When will God's righteousness be avenged? When will he return to set up his kingdom? And when will his justice prevail over evil? Throughout scripture, we see believers asking God these very same questions. Habakkuk 1, 1 to 4 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes perverted. Or Habakkuk 1.13 states, Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? We also saw in Revelation 6.10 that in heaven the martyrs who had been slain for the word of God cried out to God saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Isn't it true that God's silence is often very perplexing to men? Ladies, be assured that day is coming when the mystery of God's silence will be broken when all the pain, sorrow, and evil in the world will end and God will be triumphant and set up his earthly kingdom and he will rule righteously. That day, we will see from our study today, is connected to the sound of the seventh trumpet described in Revelation 10.7, which states, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. In that day, the great mystery will end. The nations will be healed. Justice will be served, and evil will be eradicated. At the trumpet call of Revelation 10:7, the effects of the curse, thousands of years of sin, death and evil will soon come to an end. So with that in mind, let's skip ahead just for a moment to chapter 11, verses 14 to 15, where we read, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the angel, seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet signals the reign of Christ. It will unleash the seven bold judgments that immediately precede Christ's return to earth. It also describes the last three and a half years of the tribulation when the wrath of God is poured out. But before the seventh trumpet sounds, we have another interlude or pause. In our study today of chapters 10 and 11, we have the second interlude 
which we'll see in chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 14. And then we'll finish, end the chapter, chapter 11, with the seventh trumpet. God's purpose for these interludes is to reassure his people that amid the horror and destruction of his divine judgment, he is still sovereign and in complete control of every event, and he will emerge victorious. But even amidst God's divine judgment and wrath, he also shows mercy in allowing more opportunity for repentance. Ladies, we have seen from our study thus far that the book in Revelation, there is symbolism and literal translation, which has led to differing views among credible theologians regarding future events. Yet even in these differences, the gospel message is not altered. Different, different, differing eschatological views do not negate the gospel message. So as to not spend a lot of time on those views or on things we cannot know, I'm going to be sticking to the overall message in Revelation. The bottom line, Jesus triumphs. So let's jump in. Chapter 10 opens with the beginning of a new vision where the Apostle John sees the appearance of an angel. We start reading in verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He opened his, he, no, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder had spoken, and do not write them. So this angel is separate from the seven angels who sound the trumpet, and there's speculation as to who this angel is. Some commentators say this angel is the Christ because of similar imagery that we see in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. But the Greek word for another means one of the same kind, which alludes to a created being. It is most likely an angel, but as I said earlier, we don't, want, we don't know for sure, so further speculation is not fruitful. Notice this angel is described as mighty or strong, coming down from the very presence of God in heaven with authority to deliver a message. So coming down of heaven, we know this angel is God's messenger. John goes on to describe his attire as being wrapped in a cloud. One commentator described it as wearing a drapery, the drapery of the sky over his mighty shoulders, which symbolizes his power, majesty, and glory in bringing God's judgment. Clouds are also associated with the second coming of Christ in judgment. We further read that the angel has a rainbow over his head, which is a symbol of God's faithfulness. As with his covenant to Noah to never flood the earth again, his rainbow is a sign of promise, reassuring God's people of his mercy and the coming judgments. So then we see the cloud represents judgment, and the rainbow represents God's covenant mercy amid judgment. John continues his description with the angel's appearance, noting his face was like the sun. His brilliant, radiant glory lit up the earth like the blazing sun. John describes the angel's feet and legs as pillars of fire, firm, immovable pillars of fire. 
This is symbolic of God's unbending holiness as he stamps out his judgment on the earth. We can liken it to a fire which stamps out unrighteousness. This angel comes from the throne of God, displaying the brilliance of God, reminding us of who sovereignly is in charge. In his hand, the angel holds a little book which was open. Most likely, this is the book from chapter 5, verse 1, but again, there are differing views. This small book contains the immense terrors of divine judgment yet to come. So picture now this strong, immense, powerful angel standing in massive proportion with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. So I'm going to age myself here. Do you remember the Jolly Green Giant commercials <laughs> that advertised the, the green giant vegetables? In that commercial was a massively tall green giant standing feet apart, arms folded with unmovable resolve. This is the same picture of this strong angel standing firm showing that all creation belongs to the Lord. The Lord will someday take back what is rightfully his. He will forever reign over all creation. Then this angel cried out with a loud voice which thundered like a roaring lion. And this loud cry was not, a cry was not one of incoherent yelling or rambling or rumbling. Rather, it contained a message and a warning from God that was meant to capture attention and to cause fear. This cry reflected the power, majesty, and authority of God to judge the entire earth, which he will soon take back from Satan. After the angel cried out, we read at the end of uh, verse 3, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. These seven peals of thunder were loud, shattering, powerful voices crying out for the vengeance and judgment against the sinful earth. The thunder was separate from the angel's first, uh, voice. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, we also see thunders, uh, peals of thunder coming from the throne of God. And this thunder is not referring to the fury of nature, but rather to the righteous fury coming from our awesome, powerful God upon a sinful world. Before John could write down these things, as he was instructed in chapter 1, to write down all prophecy that would be revealed to him, the apostle John was told by a voice from heaven to seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder had spoken. He was not to write them down. We don't know why he was not to record these things. Perhaps what was spoken was so horrific, so awful and terrifying to be recorded. So next in verses 5 through 7, we see the announcement from the angel. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be no delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he was about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets." As we do in a court of law, we raise our right hand, placing our left hand on a Bible, and make a vow or a solemn swear that we, what we are about to say or attest to is the truth. 
in a solemn act affirming to speak the truth in the name of God, the angel revealed that the time had come. There will be no more delay. Judgment has come. The time had come for the last series of judgments to be unfolded. The mystery of God would be finished. Those things up to this point that had been a mystery and things that God had not yet revealed. Now the waiting is over. Remember the question of the martyrs back in Revelation 6:10, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That question is now answered. So those of you that have children can relate to this. Nine what seems like never-ending months of swollen ankles, numerous bathroom times at night, cravings, nausea, one outfit that fits, sleepless nights, and then it's time. Nine long-awaited months of preparation, anticipation of holding this little bundle of joy. That is what we see here. The prayers of the saints in Revelation 8, 3 through 5 will be answered. The consummation of all things in heaven and on earth will work together to bring God's glorious kingdom in Christ to fulfillment. This is how the believers felt. Their long-awaited time had come. As we move to verses 8 through 11, a voice from heaven instructs John to take the scroll from the hand of the angel. Again, we're not given the identity of this voice, but nevertheless, John is instructed to take the book from the angel who instructed him. Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So John symbolically took the little book and ate it. In taking in the remaining judgments in the little book, John found them both bitter and sweet. Sweet in the anticipation of taking back what is rightfully his, yet bitter at the realization of the terror awaiting unbelievers. Ezekiel also had a vision where he was told to eat a scroll. That scroll was filled with judgments against the nation of Israel. Ezekiel also said the scroll tasted as sweet as honey, but the contents brought destruction, just like the scroll that John was about to eat. So it is, so it is with the coming of Christ. His victory over sin and death is sweet to the saints, but it is bitter to the unsaved, who now face wrath, vengeance, and judgment of God, which will condemn them to hell. Thus, we see that John's physical reaction to God's judgment is both sweet and bitter. Sweet as he anticipates God's glory and our victory over sin, but bitter seeing God's wrath poured out on those who reject Jesus Christ. As Christians, we can relate to this. We long for Christ to return in glory, for Satan to be destroyed, and for God's kingdom to be established but we also mourn bitterly over the judgment of the ungodly. Verse 11 ends this chapter with John being commissioned to continue prophesying to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John was to continue to warn people about the coming judgments in the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls. Ladies, this is our call as well. We don't know when the day is coming, so we need to be faithful and diligent in proclaiming God's word to our family, our friends, and our neighbors. 
We now continue, we now move to chapter 11, where we continue our interlude with the ministry of the two witnesses in verses 1 to 14. Ladies, one of the commentators I used in my study said chapter 11 was the most difficult chapter in Revelation to unpack. I'll do my best to make it clear. Before we are introduced to the witnesses, John is instructed to measure the temple of God. Verses 1 and 2. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. John was once again an active participant in this vision as he was when he was instructed to eat the little book. Here he was instructed to measure the temple of God, including the altar and those who worship in it. This measuring rod, a reed-like plant, was used for measuring things in ancient times because they were long and lightweight. Now the question is, why is John told to do this? John was not physically to measure the dimensions of the temple, since no measurements are given here, but rather it alludes to the parameter of God's property, which is rightfully his. Two things occur in the Bible regarding measuring out. One is judgment, and the other is ownership. This measurement that John uh, signifies here is ownership. It defines the parameter of God's possessions. In Habakkuk 3.6, Habakkuk uh, prophesied, he stood and measured the earth. So the thought in Habakkuk was that the Lord owned the earth and could do with it what he chose. Here God is measuring out his temple because it belongs to him. God is in effect saying, I'm going to measure out the people of the temple, those who worship in it, namely Israel, for future preservation, protection, and favor. The Greek word for temple here is not the entire temple, but the inner temple, made up of the holy place and the holy of holies. Interestingly, however, in verse 2, John was instructed not to measure the outer court, which was located outside the courtyard, which contained the brazen altar. This was the court of the Gentiles, which had specific boundaries that the Gentiles were not to cross. John was to measure this area because it has been given to the nations. During this 42-month period, God will measure off Israel to save, preserve, and protect the nation. God had no obligation to redeem the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not a part of his covenant promise. His promise and obligation are to the nation of Israel. Remember, God said he would redeem all Israel after the nation is purged of unbelievers. Although the gospel is for Gentiles as well, praise God, we are grafted in. The covenant promises are with the nation of Israel. So during the second three and a half years of tribulation, the Antichrist will make a treaty with the Jews to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed in 60 to 70 AD by the Romans. After the Antichrist breaks the treaty with the Jews, the Gentiles will allow the temple to exist, but only for three and a half years. And during that time, they will tread underfoot, which means to oppress the city, which is Jerusalem. These will be the unbelieving Gentiles who have oppressed the covenant people. During the reign of the Antichrist, the oppression of Israel will continue, 
but God will preserve and protect many Israelites, which we will see in chapter 12. In verses 3 to 14, we are introduced to the ministry of the two witnesses. It reads, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. During this time, God will raise up two witnesses who will prophesy for three and a half years. They will warn of God's final outpouring of judgment and eternal condemnation for the unrepentant, calling people to repent to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. These two witnesses will be clothed in sackcloth, which expresses mourning over the wickedness of the world. Scripture doesn't tell us who these two witnesses are. Some have suggested they could be Elijah or Moses because they will have similar powers like them. John does identify them as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Both olive oil, which was used in lamps, and light often can symbolize spiritual revival. So the two witnesses here, called prophets, will be divinely protected because many will try to kill them due to their proclamation of God's coming judgment, wrath, and vengeance in calling people to repentance. Verses 5 through 6 state, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. These witnesses will have the power to bring both drought and plagues like Elijah and Moses. And because of their witness, the nature of their message and their ability to wreak havoc on the earth they will be hated and feared by the people. God, however, will protect them until they have finished their testimony. After the two witnesses finish their testimony, verse 7 tells us that the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. After 1260 days, God will remove protection over them and they will be unable to use their supernatural powers. At that time, the beast or the Antichrist comes up from the abyss, which is a prison for demons, to overpower them and kill them. Verses 8 through 10 say, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So after their deaths, their bodies will be left in the street to rot for three and a half days for every people, tribe, language, and nation to gaze upon them. So literally everyone... These witnesses were so hated by the world that the people refused to even give them decent burial, which in those days is the ultimate act of dishonoring and desecrating a body, a person. 
So this great city in verse 8 is Jerusalem. That was once God's city. That was once God's city will be overrun with evil. John describes it figuratively as Sodom and Egypt, two of the most wicked places. Sodom points to the gross immorality of the people, and Egypt is synonymous with wickedness, oppression, and violence. The holy city had become no better than Sodom and Egypt. You can be assured this will be the number one news headline for CNN, MSNBC, and all major networks. Every social media platform will be displaying this gruesome scene, and not for the crime, but to celebrate. The unrepentant, sin-hearted people will celebrate and rejoice over the death of these two witnesses. They will make a holiday for this event, partying and gift-giving. But this will be short-lived, for after three and a half days, the breath of life from God will come into the two witnesses, and they will rise to their feet. Continued panic and hatred will fill the hearts of the unrepentant, and they will hear a loud, a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And the people will watch as these two witnesses are taken into heaven. Tragically, the people are so steeped in unrepentance and hardness of heart that even watching this event does not change them. This should be no surprise to us. Jesus rightly said, if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke 16, 31. The hardened hearts of men are frightening. Following this miraculous event of the two witnesses, we read of a great earthquake Verses 13 to 14, and in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. So in conjunction with the rapture of the two witnesses, a great earthquake occurred, killing 7,000 people, which is a tenth of the city. The Greek word for people here literally means names of men, which could refer to leaders or men of distinction. They could be the leaders in the Antichrist world government. Regardless, this earthquake was very select in the 7,000 people killed. The remaining Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem were terrified and gave God glory. This is most likely an indication of true salvation. John MacArthur states, I believe then at the end of verse 13 when it says, they gave God glory to the God of heaven, that was a saving response. They were fearing God, worshiping the true God, repenting of their sin, because that is how glory is given to him. So at this point, the interlude ends, the second woe is past, the third woe is coming quickly. This brings us to the seventh trumpet, the last and final trumpet. This is the beginning of the final events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ to set up his earthly kingdom. This is the final consummation of God's redemptive plan, the mystery of God revealed, as we saw in chapter 10, verse 6. Verses 15 through 17 bring an immediate response of praise and worship. 
Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has come, become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So the tense of the verb has become, describes a future event that is so certain that it can be spoken of as if it had already taken place. Even though the final judgments had not been initiated, there were still events to happen. The assurance of victory was proclaimed in heaven with shouts of joy. Satan's reign and his power were to be broken. Along with the loud voices from heaven, the 24 elders who were seated fell to their faces to worship. Assuming that they had been seated up until this time, during all the other previous judgments, this was the time to celebrate. I'll never forget my husband when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, jumping to his feet, jumping up and down, high-fiving my sons with extreme exuberance. This is the scene in heaven. Shouts of joy, elders standing, falling on their faces, giving thanks to God Almighty, the eternal one who was and who is. Tragically, the nations responded in rage at the prospect of Christ's kingdom being established over the whole earth. Verse 18 states, and the nations were enraged. This rage was not a quick moment of the temper, but a deep-seated, ongoing hostility over setting up Christ's kingdom on earth. A settled, burning resentment against God resulted in assembling armies to fight God. This is the futility of wickedness and evil. Their hardened hearts and anger against heaven will result in their destruction at Armageddon. The end of verse 18 brings judgment. And your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. This wrath, like the coming of Christ's kingdom in verse 15, is spoken of as if it already happened. It describes a future event as an already accomplished fact. The coming of God's wrath brought judgment and rewards. No one will escape judgment. Even those who died during this time without Christ will be judged for the unrepentance and condemned to hell for eternity. Believers will be judged for their faithfulness. Revelation 22:12 states, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man to his own labor. Lastly, judgment is coming to specific unbelievers, the Antichrist, his followers, and Satan himself. We end this chapter with a promise in verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This is an amazing promise to believers that the temple of God, which is in heaven, the place where his presence dwells, is open and now available in its fullness. 
God opens the Holy of Holies, where in the Old Testament no man entered, dared enter except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But now God draws his people into his presence. The covenant which God has promised to men is now available in fullness. God is throwing open the Holy of Holies. Now where God dwells, we will dwell. Then God lit the sky with fireworks. The message of the seventh trumpet is that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king. And one day taking back the rule of the earth away from Satan. He brings covenant blessings for believers, but eternal judgment for those that reject him. Ladies, the day is coming when the nations will soon be healed, justice will be served, and evil eradicated. Today is the day for you to examine your hearts to determine where you will spend eternity. The judgments we have studied are horrifying and real, and they will take place. So I plead with you, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, that today is the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that this world is not our home that you are coming again to set up your earthly kingdom for your faithful servants. Help us to be faithful to proclaim your word until you come. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.